All right, so you have a handout there with lots of blanks for tonight. So make sure you got you a pen and your paper. And uh, we're going to launch into this talking about uh, how to study the Bible. Really three main questions we're going to answer tonight. My job for tonight is to answer the first two, which are what is the Bible and why can we trust the Bible? Okay, but as we get started tonight, anyone here ever heard of SETI, S-E-T-I? It's a space studying thing. I'm trying to give it away by defining it yet, but SETI, no one's heard of SETI? Okay, I'm not surprised you haven't, but so SETI stands for the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. That's what the acronym stands for, and it's this group that used to be funded by um, NASA, but now it's not anymore, but it's this group that spends about 30 million dollars every year to set up these giant space telescopes, not telescopes, basically space microphones, these giant um, satellite dishes, and the whole job of these satellite dishes is to listen out into space, basically for ET, for ET to like speak to us. They spend $30 million a year doing this. And the only thing they've gotten back is like back in like 1977, they finally heard a signal that some people call a message. I'm not gonna play it tonight, but all it sounds like is you're all too old or too young for this, but like AOL dial up internet from back in the 90s, like that's exactly what it sounds like. They spent millions upon millions of dollars to get a broken dial-up signal that they say is like some kind of message from beyond, right? So they spent all this money to, to get this message and kind of make sense of what may be out there. But like, why would they do that? You know, why would so many people donate money? Because they, they, they're runoff donations in many ways. Why would they donate all this money to, to find some kind of message from the great beyond? Well, in many ways, it's because they're trying to make sense of this life and to search for something bigger than us that can help us understand who we are and our place in existence and in the world and in the universe. But the truth is that we're talking about in the Bible tonight, like we don't need to spend, as fun as that is, and I'm not against science and exploration, but we don't need to spend millions of dollars to find a voice from beyond that's spoken to us to tell us who we are and our place in the world. Really, we have the Bible, God's Word, to help us do that. And that's why we're going to look at the Bible tonight and unpack these uh, important questions, okay? So really, I have like seven just bullet points for you about things about the Bible that we're going to kind of briefly walk through tonight to get into this. And the first is this. It's just, what is the Bible? Well, I gave you your first blank there. It says this, the Bible is God speaking his truth through human words. The Bible is God speaking his truth through human words. And another way to say that, I gave you the blank below it, is that when the Bible speaks, God speaks. All right? When the Bible speaks, God speaks. It was Martin Luther years ago that kind of said that originally. But when the Bible speaks, God speaks. That it's often easy for us, if you are like me and maybe grown up in church and been familiar with the Bible for a long time, to like not realize how incredible the Bible is. That the Bible is literally God making himself known to us. We don't have to wonder what God is like and wonder his plan for our life. That God has given that to us in his word, and he's done it through the Bible. This book, like, sitting here that I think belongs to Sam Burgess, wherever he comes in. I think it's his Bible right there. Like, that God has made himself known to us through the Bible. And so a little bit to know about the Bible is this. Like, anybody know what the Bible, like, the word Bible stands for? Or not stands for, but uh, it's... Was it Nate that said at Baptist Court Street, basic instructions before leaving earth, which is like a, a 90s like uh, worship song. And they sing like, la, 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 la. It's a weird song. All right, but anyway, but uh, you may know what the word Bible means in the original language. Anybody? Yeah, it means book. Yeah, so Greek, it's like um, a, uh, another way to say book from the Greek. So really, Holy Bible means holy book, okay? So we think about Holy Bible means holy book. All right, but the Bible was written in how many languages? Anybody know? Do it. I am. Look at that. I'm giving you a, how many, how many languages were the Bible written? No. Three, right? It was written in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Okay, I'm not doing any more. Uh, I do this a lot when I do points, and so I got to stop doing that for, uh, if I'm asking you the question. Do what? I've never heard that before. So if that's true, I've not heard that. So though usually it gets said it's Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. All right. It was written over a period of 1,500 years. So a long period of time by more than 40 authors on three continents, okay? So three languages over 1,500 years by more than 40 authors on three continents. All right, and then the Bible also has how many books? You wanna know how many books are in the Bible? 66, I can't put that on my hand for you to guess, all right? 66, all right, how many are in the Old Testament? Anybody? 39, yeah, and this is that Bible drill. And then New Testament? 
27. You do the math, right? So 66 math, 39. So 39 Old Testament, 27 New Testament. And the Bible is separated into Old Testament, New Testament. The Old Testament being the account of God creating the world all the way through a few generations before Jesus, around 450-ish B.C. Not that that's a huge important number to know. But in the New Testament is then the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, then writings to the churches on how they're to live in light of that. So really, Jesus is the dividing line there for the Old New Testament. But in that, sometimes people get held up or caught up on Old versus New Testament. Does that mean the Old Testament is outdated or irrelevant? Well, that's not the case at all. Uh, I heard uh, Mark Dever, a pastor up in uh, D.C., say once that the Old Testament are promises made by God. So they're in your blank if you want to write that down. It's promises made. But then the New Testament is then promises kept. All right, so Old Testament is promises made, and then the New Testament is promises kept or promises fulfilled in Christ. And so the Old Testament, all those promises are hugely important as we think about the New Testament. And the Old Testament also reveals so much of us, uh, of God's character to us. So with that, let me give you a few wrong ways to understand the Bible. All right, there's kind of two, two main wrong ways I can think of when we think about the Bible. The first wrong way is that the Bible is a book of rules to follow. Rules to follow. Because, yeah, the Bible certainly has a lot of rules in it. They show us how life works best. But the thing is, the Bible isn't mainly about you. And isn't mainly about what you should be doing. Really, the Bible is about God and what God has done. So if you think the Bible is all about rules, you're eventually going to be crushed by that because you're going to be discouraged that you can't follow all the rules and that you can't live up to these standards. So that's the first wrong way. But the second wrong way to understand the Bible is that the Bible is a book of heroes to imitate. Heroes to imitate. Because while the Bible does have some little H heroes in it, they're very much not people that you want to imitate in all the ways they live their life. Like think about Abraham, right? He was a coward. Every time he goes somewhere new, he'd tell them his wife was his sister so they wouldn't try to like kill him, I guess, to get his wife. You think about Moses, he was a murderer. Think about David, an adulterer and a murderer. Like these, these little heroes that we talk about in the Bible are very broken, imperfect people. Right? But they point us to a capital H hero of Jesus being the main hero of the story. So with that, if those are two wrong ways to understand the Bible. What is the right way to understand the Bible? It's this, that the Bible is a story. The Bible is a story. And I, I want to quote to you my favorite Bible commentary. It's the Jesus Storybook Bible for children. <laughs> that I read to my kids every night. But I really, lo I love this quote from Sally Lloyd-Jones. She's the, the author of that, that uh, children's Bible storybook. She says this, she says, the Bible is most of all a story. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story. The story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And Jesus is at the center of the story. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He is like the missing piece in a puzzle, the piece that makes all other pieces fit together, and suddenly you can see a beautiful picture. Now, I, I love that, but the idea is that Jesus is the hero of the story. He is the center of the Bible. Everything points to him. Like in John chapter 5, Jesus says that all the scriptures, which at that time would have been the Old Testament, all the scriptures bear witness to him. They all point to him. So we have to look at every verse in the Bible through the lens of Jesus. Because the central message of the Bible is about Christ and what he's come to do for us, not us and what we need to try to do for him to like earn his love. But the Bible points to Jesus as the hero of the story. And if we try to make ourselves the hero of the story, all that stuff I mentioned about us being burdened and crushed under the weight of trying to imitate or trying to follow the rules, that's going to come on us because we misunderstand what the point of the Bible is. The Bible ultimately is meant to point us to faith in Jesus and what he's done, not in what we need uh, to try to do to earn his love. It gives us a lot of ways to, and guidance to how to live in light of that, but we got to begin with Jesus as the center of the story of the Bible, okay? That's the first uh, bullet point I gave you. The rest of them are less blanks, okay? But the second point, that the Bible is inspired, all right? Inspired. For sake of time tonight, I'm going to read it myself. Um, I would normally get someone to read it, but 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, if you want to um, have that uh, open, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, you've probably heard this before. It says this, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 
We're not going to spend time unpacking all the things in there, but what, what I want you to see in that is that while the Bible may have human authors, it has one divine author. It has a lot of human authors, but one divine author. That the Bible wasn't co-authored by man, like someone kind of um, tagging up, like tag teaming to write a book together with like two authors at the bottom of the page. It wasn't co-authored by man. The Bible wasn't uh, dictated to uh, humanity, like, the, like Muslims often say that the Quran was dictated to Muhammad. And the Bible also is not human writings that people eventually kind of began to realize had like spiritual meaning in them. That's how many Eastern religions recognize their texts. That's not how the Bible is inspired. But we got the Bible when people who were prepared and motivated and guided by God, they spoke and wrote according to their personality. God used their personality, but he guided them in their own circumstances in a way that their words were the words of God. All right, that their words were God's words. And we call that divine inspiration. Not in the sense that like you get inspired by like, you know, seeing a beautiful sunset and you go like write a poem about it. That's not that kind of inspiration, okay? But instead, the writings of the Bible, like it says in 2 Timothy 3, they are God-breathed, right? That they are the words God wanted us to receive from him. And that it's like the way that the wind fills, uh, fills the sails of a sailboat. That God filled and guided and directed the authors of the Bible to where when they wrote down what they were writing down, they were guided and carried along by God and by the Holy Spirit to write out what God wanted them to say to where their words were the words of God. You think about even the Old Testament, like in the Old Testament prophets, there's oftentimes where they are really clear that they are speaking on behalf of God and that God has told them what to say. And then you look at the New Testament and Jesus goes and affirms the Old Testament in the way he talks about it. But even the New Testament, even as you have people like Paul writing these letters that are getting sent to churches, it was really clear. And the Christians at that time in the early church began to recognize that God was doing something special in these writings, that God was adding to the authoritative writings of the Old Testament by using these believers who had spent close time with Jesus and met him by using them to communicate these things to them. They recognized and there was a collective agreement that these were additional scriptures. And we'll talk more about that in a minute, what all that can mean. But we see that divine inspiration there. A few other things to, write, to reference. I think I put this in your notes, but 1 Timothy 5.18, I won't read all that scripture there, but in 1 Timothy 5.18, Paul identifies the words spoken by Jesus that are found in Luke's gospel. He calls those scripture, right? It's already in Luke's gospel. He calls those scripture. And then in 2 Peter 3.16, Peter refers to some of Paul's letters as scripture. And he says they're hard to understand. <laughs> so if you ever struggle with some of Paul's writings, uh, Peter would agree with you in some ways. But Peter calls Paul's letters scripture in 2 Peter 3.16. So even as the New Testament's being written, Christians began to recognize what was going on here with scripture being written. So that's the second point. But the third is this, is that the Bible is two things. It is infallible and inerrant. Two words we probably don't use a lot, but the Bible is infallible and inerrant. I'll spell it for you. Infallible, I-N-F-A-L-L-I-B-L-E. It's like infallible, but infallible. And inerrant is just I-N-E-R-R-A-N-T. All right? Everybody got that? It's okay if you don't spell it perfectly. It's not seminary. Although in seminary, I'm pretty sure they wouldn't have counted off I spelled if I left out an L on infallible. All right, infallibility means this. Infallibility means it's not capable of being wrong. All right, it's not capable of being wrong. And then inerrancy means it's without error or mistake. So what that means is this, is that because the author of the Bible is God, ultimately, and God himself cannot lie and God does not make mistakes, and the Bible has no errors and the Bible has no contradictions, even though there are things in the Bible that are difficult to understand and that take time to kind of reconcile and figure out. Because the Bible itself claims to be the perfect word of God, like 2 Timothy 3. We saw that, that all scripture is God-breathed. It's breathed out by God. But even consider like Psalm 19. Psalm 19, 7 through 8, I gave you that reference. It says this, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. So even that first phrase, the law of the Lord is perfect, making a claim there about the law of God, which would be much more than the book of Psalms, at least be a large portion of the New Testament or Old Testament. But you'll see throughout the Bible all these claims that the Bible makes to be the very words of God. And you may say, hey, Kyle, that seems like a circular argument that the Bible would say it's accurate and um, the words of God and inerrant. Like, just because the Bible says it doesn't mean it's true, right? It seems like a circular argument. 
to make that case. But if you consider the accuracy of the Bible, that argument begins to make a lot of sense that it's self-affirming in its accuracy leading to its validity and its inerrancy. So give me, let me give you just one example of the accuracy of the Bible. In Luke's gospel, right, we're going through Luke a lot this year in our different groups, but in Luke's gospel, over and over again, Dr. Luke, the guy that wrote it, he accurately identifies tons of different people by their name, by their job title, um, by uh, the time that they lived in, the place they were at, over and over again, he is incredibly accurate in the way he identifies different people. And that was a challenge at the time, because in, in Luke's culture, like, political job titles and political titles were diverse, and they were changing all the time. So for Luke to be able to accurately and consistently address people the right way, it shows that he was really giving, like he says, like a firsthand account from interviewing witnesses. He's gathering all this detail, and it's true information. And you can even check with historians and people who aren't even necessarily Christians, but they respect the historical validity of the Bible, both new and old. And they'll say that, yeah, like in Luke's gospel, he's accurate in all these different random things that sometimes we weren't even sure this is a real title. Then we dug up some stuff in Jerusalem 20 years ago and figured out, oh, look, that stone says this job title that Luke you know, gave in his gospel. Like that kind of stuff's happening all the time. Here's a QR code I put on your paper that has a Christianity Today article that I read just like a couple of days ago. It talks about King David. And now for a long time, some archaeologists didn't believe King David was exactly the way the Bible described him because they couldn't find the evidence. But even in the past, like, uh, less than 10 years, they've dug up even more archaeological, archaeological evidence to confirm that the Bible's description of David and his kingdom and all these things is accurate. So we're still discovering this stuff to affirm the things the Bible's been saying all along. So it's super, super cool. So you can look at that when you, uh, when you want to. Um, but it's also important to remember that when we talk about the accuracy of the Bible, that sometimes things like speeches in the Bible are obviously summaries. Like the Sermon on the Mount, that in Matthew 5-7, through it's probably a summary of more things that Jesus said, right? You look at Paul's uh, sermon at Pentecost. Man, that guy was long-winded. There's no way that Paul's ser- Peter's sermon at Pentecost was that short in the Bible. Because at one point, he's like, not, actually it's Paul, but another apostle gives a speech at one point. He's preaching, and a, a guy falls asleep and falls out a window and dies, <laughs> and they have to revive him. Uh, like, you know these guys were long-winded. So for the fact that, like, the Sermon on the Mount or Pentecost sermon, like, those are probably abbreviations and summaries of the sermon, not word for word exactly what they said. But that's normal for that type of literature at the time for them to do that. And also some head counts in the Bible are obviously rounded up or down. That's normal for that literature. But none of those things would be called errors, right? We're not saying that there were errors in the Bible. We just have to read the Bible in, in, in light of the kind of literature that it is, depending on the book that we're reading. Okay? That's the uh, point number three. Number four is that the Bible is sufficient. All right? The Bible is sufficient. So during the Reformation in the 1500s, the Reformers took up this phrase called sola scriptura, which means the Bible alone or scripture alone, which really means that scripture alone is our highest authority. And so that doesn't mean that the Bible is sufficient for every truth that we ever need. Like if, for me, I was civil engineering, right? Civil engineers don't need to go open the Bible to look for the directions to build a bridge, right? Because that's not you know, what the Bible is for. It's not there to teach you how to build a bridge. It teaches true principles that can lead you to understand and learn more things about the world. But if you're an engineer, you need to have an engineering textbook to learn that. But to say the Bible is sufficient is to say that the Bible is sufficient to teach us all we need to know about God, all we need to know to be in a relationship with him, all we need to know about the person and work of Jesus, like what God is moving history toward. All these things, the Bible is sufficient to give us all we need to know, that we don't need any extra revelation from people, um, or any extra revelation even from God to know those things, that in the Bible, he's given us all we need for spiritual truth. That doesn't mean that other books you can read are not helpful for spiritual guidance. I love reading books. We hand out books all the time here for um, this guidance and wisdom and in all kinds of different areas spiritually, but all those books, at the end of the day, need to be centered on the teaching of the Bible, to check with the teaching of the Bible, and as we read things, we all also want to be thinking, man, like, that's an interesting thought. Like, does that line up with what the Bible teaches? Because the Bible has to be the center because it is the ultimate authority in our lives when it comes to spiritual truth, and it and alone is sufficient for all we need for life and godliness. Does that make sense? So the Bible is sufficient. A lot more we can say with that, but that's the main idea. The next is that the Bible is trustworthy. All right, the Bible is trustworthy. So the truth is this. If you have a good modern translation of the Bible, 
on your phone or uh, in front of you tonight, then you probably have one of the most accurate translations of the Bible ever known to man up until this point. That you have, in many ways, almost nearly exactly what the original authors meant to say in the Bible that you have today. That your Bible is accurate. Because while it's true that we don't have like, the original letter that Paul wrote to the Colossians, we don't have like, that in like, a glass case somewhere, the one that he wrote with his hand, like, all, those, all those books and writings have been lost to history. While we don't have those, we also don't have original copies of pretty much any historical works that date back to that time period. Like, consider a writing like this, like Julius Caesar's Gaelic Wars, which is something that many historians use as a very credible uh, historical account of the life of Caesar at that time and all the things he was doing, like we at most have about 10 readable copies of Caesar's Gaelic Wars, at most 10. And those copies we have, most historians would date them to be written or copied, I should say, copied about 900 years after Caesar lived. So they're separated by 900 years from Caesar and when he was alive. But when it comes to the Bible, we have more copies of biblical manuscripts than for any other historical, philosophical, philosoph- well, philosophical, <laughs> say it again, historical, philosophical, or literary work, we have more copies of the Bible than any other thing that we would trust for historical information. We have way more copies of the Bible than anything else. Like, consider the New Testament alone. We won't worry about Old Testament for the sake of time, but just the New Testament. Like, we have about 5,400, not 10, like with Caesar, but we have 5,400 original language manuscripts of the New Testament. Now, a manuscript could be a couple of things. A manuscript could be like a little piece of paper with like half a verse on it. That counts as a manuscript. Or it could be a whole book of the Bible. It could be a whole New Testament collection. But the average manuscript, like if you were to go to a, many seminaries have like exhibits and other scholarly places have these exhibits with different manuscripts they have. The average manuscript is going to be about 450 pages long. So most manuscripts are pretty substantial but we have 5,400 original language manuscripts. And, and if you ask people who are smart at this and who study this kind of stuff and know what they're talking about, that we have fragments from those manuscripts that were written no later than 100 years from the original source. And when it comes to the book of Mark, we have a piece of Mark that historians date to be written in the first century. It's like one of the original copies of the Gospel of Mark. Not the original, but that thing would have been copied within the lifetime of all the people that would have been alive during the, the gospel of Mark. Which tells you what, they could have said, hey, this stuff you're talking about with Jesus, this never happened. We were all alive when that was going on, or what you claim was going on. So the, the dating all the way back to the early sources gives a ton of credibility to the Bible and the accuracy of it. And just think about this, like the Bible at that point was written on papyrus, right? That's like really fragile paper. That stuff does not last long. It isn't, uh, it's not very sustainable. So like, it's amazing that we still have these copies that we do from so long ago. It's almost like God wanted this stuff to be preserved, right? It's almost like God in his sovereignty sustained these things. But also when it comes to these things, with the New Testament, you may say, okay, we have 5,400 copies, but how many variations are there in it? Like you got one copy of the Gospel of John that says one verse here. You got another copy of the Gospel of John that says something, that says something different on that verse. Well, you're going to find that if you go and you compare all those 5,400 copies, that they are about 99% consistent throughout all of the manuscripts. 99% consistency. And there's only a, a few small variations all throughout the manuscripts, and none of them change anything, change anything at all about theology, right? Most Bibles are really transparent with that to where if you have like a footnote in your Bible where it says like, or this, or could say this, like that's the, sp- the spots where we have those really tiny variants, but none of that changes what we be- believe doctrinally, and they're pretty rare. They're 99% consistent throughout these manuscripts, and so that's pretty incredible when you begin to think about it. And so that means that outside of like going back in time and, and hearing Paul like, you know, read out his letter to the Colossians. Outside of that, like the Bible you have in your hand today is one of the most accurate Bibles that anyone has had in all of history. And we have like Bible scholars to thank for that. All right, so we have incredibly accurate Bibles today. But number six, the Bible is complete. All right, so last one of the few questions we're gonna finish here with is why don't we just add more books to the Bible over time, right? Who determined what's in the Bible? Like who decided these books that are, that are in there were what we wanted? Well, that brings up the canon of scripture. You may have heard that word canon before. It just comes from the Greek word for like measuring rod. So that means that the canon of scripture is the measurement that we use to say what God wanted in the Bible and what he didn't want in the Bible. 
And so how do we get those books? Like, did God just kind of shout from heaven one day, like, hey, put those 66 books in there? Like, no, that's, that's not how it worked. But instead, what happened is that over time, the church began to recognize the divine inspiration of the books we have, and they began to come into an agreement on which ones should be in the Bible. And that happened through church leader meetings called councils, like church councils would be a meeting of church leaders at that time to decide these things. So for early Christians, they received the Old Testament from the Jews, and Jesus affirmed the Old Testament. So the Old Testament was pretty agreed on pretty quickly with Christians. But for the New Testament, the early church pretty immediately began to recognize most of the New Testament books that we have as being divinely inspired and uh, given to us as more scripture. Now, there were a few books that had, took a little bit of time for them to work out if they should be on the canon list, but there were some other books that were maybe written by some other uh, early church fathers that were kind of debated for a bit as well. But by the fourth century, the church decided that, hey, we've talked about this long enough. We've kind of come to an agreement. We want to kind of settle this once and for all. And so in the East, that list of books was determined by a list uh, a guy named Athanasius made. He wrote a letter to somebody kind of listing out the books of the canon, and Athanasius listed out the books of the New Testament that we have in our Bible today. In the West, that canon was fixed at the Council of Carthage. It's like 397 A.D. But at that council, it wasn't like they all sat around and said, all right, guys, we got to figure it out. Like, should we put these in there? Should we put this in there? Like, it wasn't like a vote. Hey, raise your hand if you think that Second Peter should go in there. It wasn't that kind of situation at all. But at that point, and by that point, there was very little dispute on what should be considered canon, but really they were simply affirming what the church for a while now had accepted as the canon. Uh, I love this quote by J.I. Packer. J.I. Packer says this, the church no more, no more gave us the New Testament than Sir Isaac Newton gave us gravity. That God gave us gravity by his work of creation and similarly, he gave us the New Testament canon by inspiring the individual books that make it up. It wasn't like the church kind of got together and just voted on what should be in the New Testament. But instead, it was affirmed and recognized as, like gravity, something that God has put in place that we accept. And so the main criteria, though, when they were talking about this is they were looking at each book's connection to an apostle. Like, was this person who wrote the book an apostle? Or at least is the author, like Luke, someone who interviewed apostles and had a lot of connection to them? Did it have this apostolic connection? That was kind of one of the main criteria they were looking at. And so with that, if you've ever been, like, in a church business meeting, you know, like, what a miracle it is that the church agreed on all the books of the Bible <laughs> in the New Testament. Like, you, you should recognize the miracle that is in that, that they agreed um, and recognized what God was doing. All right, the last thing, and we're done uh, with my part, is the Bible has lots of translations, Right? There are lots of translations that you can pick up online at a bookstore, things like that. But just to think about translations for one second, you've got two main camps of translations. You've got the word for word and the thought for thought. On your paper there, you have one called formal equivalence. That's the word for word, formal equivalence. You have the other side that is uh, called dynamic equivalence. So formal equivalence is more of a word for word where the translation focuses on being precise and transparent, so you can kind of see the original language, the Greek or the Hebrew kind of at work in that. The downside of that is it sometimes kind of sounds kind of choppy because it's not um, being smoothed out as much as some of the other translations would do. But there's a lot of benefit in word for word because you get a more like precise, I won't say accurate, but precise wording in the translation. Um, so I think one of the best or the, the two probably top word-for-word -word translations are like the ESV and the NASB, uh, English Standard Version and New American Standard Bible. Those are probably the, the two best word-for-word -word translations. The, the King James is also word-for-word, -word, but it's kind of hard to understand. People don't really, <laughs> the these and thous throw people off. I wouldn't recommend that for your average reading just because of the language. But those ESV and NASB are two great word-for-word -word translations. But when it comes to the thought-for-thought, -thought, the more dynamic the idea there is that they're trying to convey the full nuance of the passage. So they're going to do a little bit of interpretation for you, kind of smooth out the language and kind of pull out some of the meaning a little bit more than just giving you uh, the more detailed and kind of precise translation that the other versions would give. That means that it's easier to read, but you do sometimes lose a little bit of insight into the original structure and organization of the text. And so when it comes to dynamic, for the thought for thought, um, my two kind of favorite are like NIV. NIV is great thought-for-thought uh, -thought translation, but also the CSB, the ones that we have on the um, windowsills over here, it's kind of more on the thought-for-thought -thought spectrum 
as well. There's actually a little spectrum, literally like a timeline I gave you on the bottom, where it kind of shows kind of where all those or many common translations kind of fall on that spectrum. And so with that, uh, the question is, like, what do you do? Like, what do you read? Oh, I forgot to mention paraphrases. There's also things like the message, right? Paraphrase. By the way, the message, it was never meant to be used as a translation. Eugene Peterson, who wrote it, he, he, he always got really upset at the way that thing was marketed because he never meant for that to be a translation because he never said it was a translation. He was preaching through the Bible, and as he was preaching, he would just kind of make his own like paraphrase of it and use that in his sermon. He never meant for it to be a translation. It was marketed kind of weird, which is why some people like, don't, don't like it because it's not a translation. I think it's beneficial if you recognize it's a paraphrase. He's not trying to uh, you know, make it scripture. He's just saying this is another way to think about it. Now, it's kind of outdated because he uses some phrases that are a little bit old school now, but I still find it really helpful in my own study and preparation for teaching the Bible to read the message. This has a way to kind of think about it a little bit differently and wrap my head around the text. It's helpful, but it's a paraphrase. Don't make that your Bible that you read every day because it's not the Bible, right? It's a, it's a paraphrase, okay? But with that, you know, when it comes to translations, like everyone has its strengths and its weaknesses. So like they're all tools to use. So use the one that benefits you. But I would encourage you, to read one of four translations consistently. Either read ESV, NASB, NIV, or CSB. Those are four great translations that I would encourage you to read and make kind of your consistent daily reading Bible. If you like another version, that's great. Like, I'd love to hear what version you're reading if you're not reading that, unless it's like NKJV or KJV. I know those are common too. But another one, I'd be curious to know what you're reading. But those are my four recommendations. I think they're really helpful uh, translations of the Bible. Okay, so with that, that is all my stuff. Now, Kim's going to come up and get into some of the nitty-gritty on how do we study the Bible. Okay. Um, yeah, so speaking about translations, one of the things that um, I like to do with translation is um, is I have one that is my, my go-to. That's the one I'm reading out of daily and studying, um, and it is usually like the one my pastor uses too just so that I'm taking my Bible to church and it's the same translations but I like to have um, a couple like he said just having a couple of others to to look at because sometimes when you're looking at a verse you're like oh let, let me see what this version says and it's helpful when you're really trying to dig in to more of the meaning um, <clears throat> and so you can hear the differences between them as you do that so that's a food for thought um, okay so before you begin so my part is how do you study it and so when I was preparing this like I wanted to make it super practical <laughs> for us um, and so before you begin okay so this is establishing the discipline of personal Bible study it doesn't come naturally for us to get in to to just read the Bible daily and study it daily, right? There are so many things that come up from um, in our days that we can put on top of that and deem more important. But if we think about it, the Bible is our means to know God. And so as we develop a study, a discipline of personal Bible study, like this is a discipline and it's going to take time to really kind of figure out. And probably if you were in a, in a season where you're currently reading the Bible daily on your own, like that didn't, you didn't start out doing what you're doing now. It's a progression and as you grow and mature, like that changes over time. So um, the first thing I would say is determine your time, like schedule it into your day. <laughs> um, just be intentional from the start. Like I'm gonna get up in the mornings and I'm gonna go and do this and this, and then I'm gonna sit down and read my Bible. So like, and it doesn't have to be in the mornings. I prefer mine in the mornings because I find that if I don't, if I don't read the Bible in the morning, I don't read it. <laughs> and so, um, and there'll be days where you don't have as much time because you ever sleep or whatever, but like schedule it into your day. Um, Mark 135 says very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. So we see multiple times in um, the New Testament where Jesus got up early or got away from the crowd and it was early, right? And there's just something about starting your day in the word, focusing on who Jesus is and what he's done and what he's calling you to do. Um, Luke 6, 12 though says, one of those days Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying. So he was like all nighter. And, um, and so, right, that's, we don't have to do both of those things, but we can do one of those things. And so, like, establish a time. If you're not a morning person, 
and you don't want to get up and do that first thing, that's okay, right? Let's not be legalistic about when we study the Bible. Um, but I would encourage you to because it does affect the entire day, usually. Um, there's been seasons in my life where I got up super early and that was the first thing I did. But then also when I was in school and taking classes, like I remember this one semester, like I, if I didn't do it before class that morning, I, would, I had a break. And I just said, you know what? My relationship with the Lord is more important than my relationship with others. And so if I had not done my Bible study um, reading that morning, then I would skip like this, this break I had where I would normally go have coffee or whatever we did, eat breakfast with friends. I would go back and read my Bible. So it's like you can determine when, when to do it. But determine your time. Set a time. Be intentional about it. Also, determine your place. Um, think about like where you're going to get up and do that. And if it's in the middle of the day, then, you know, find a place where you can have some time where you're not distracted. Um, find some place that's comfortable. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like these are normal kind of like common sense things, but like if you're in a very like public place and you're easily distracted, chances are you're not going to be able to focus. And I've, there's been seasons where I've done it and a more public place, but it's not as <laughs> effective for me to do that. Um, if, if it's not a comfortable setting, if it's too hot, I'm not going to focus. Like, all I'm going to think about is how hot it is. You know what I mean? Because I don't like to be hot. But, so that's just, you know, so determine your place. Three, determine your reading plan. So there's so many different approaches to this, but have a set plan. Don't just get up in the morning and, like, casually just pick a location in the Bible to read it. Pick a plan so that you know every day where you're going to be. And that could look like I'm going to read book by book, and you're going to start in Genesis and keep on reading. Um, It could be that when it was chronologically written. So there's that. Hey, guys. Um, There's uh, the handouts right there. Um, You could decide you're going to alternate between a New Testament book or an Old Testament book. So you could do that. Or you could have a topic guide. Um, I did a study one time on the names of God, and so I wasn't in a specific book just reading through, but I knew every day during that time, those 30 or 40 days, that where I was going to be. And that is super helpful because it's like you are setting up a time to meet God, and, you, and it's going to be in what he's going to give you in that moment. It's going to be super intentional. And, um, and so I would just encourage you to de- determine your reading plan. So, like, go into it knowing that, hey, I'm reading through the book of John right now. I'm going to be in this chapter, this, this chapter, this day. Okay? And then determine your tools. So what tools do you need? And by that I mean, like, in addition to your Bible— And that's all you can use, right? But, like, do you need a journal? Do you need a pen? (laughs) Like, think about what all you're going to have. But also, I'd encourage you to, like, to think about getting a commentary. And we've given you a list of resources um, to have so that you can do a deeper dive and learn through the commentaries, maybe things that you wouldn't normally just know by reading that. Because you don't know what the cultural um, customs of the day were or whatever. Um, Or a, a Bible dictionary or is there an app? that you can use. So go ahead and get, um, get those tools together. And you're, this is a, I don't, I have no idea who said this originally, but I've heard it for years. Your direct, uh, your direction determines your destination. If you're not intentional, you won't establish this as a discipline. So you can't just like hope that this is gonna, (laughs) this is gonna happen. You have to be, um, uh, determined to do it and kind of set up a time to meet with Jesus just like you would set up a time to meet with a friend, okay? Um, And I would say this too, quality over quantity. Like if you have these great desire to read through the Bible in a year and the, the, the app that you're using has you like reading six chapters a day and you're not doing it, because you're just so overwhelmed that you've got to sit there and read six, then don't do that. (laughs) Like, read a chapter a day. You know what I mean? Like, don't be so legalistic about it um, that that the enemy just convinces you not to study the Bible at all. Okay, because that can definitely happen. He can convince you that, well, you don't have enough time this morning, or you're so far behind in your reading plan. You just might, or your heart's not in it. You're not wanting to do it. You would rather sleep another 30 minutes, so... You know what I mean? Like the enemy's going to try to distract you from knowing God. But you have to push through that and just be determined, right? 
So um, I always say quality over quantity. If you can't read those whatever chapters, four chapters a day, it's okay. Read one chapter, you know? <laughs> like, think about, think about it. Um, okay, what's effective? And just think about what's effective. So the next section is before you begin. How do you approach um, appropriately? And so there's a book that we gave our leadership team in the spring um, called Before You Open Your Bible. And it's just this thin little book. And I loved it because it was, it was such a good reminder of how to approach the Bible. And how many times in the morning do I just get up and start reading and don't really approach it in the way that we should or the, the way that I should. And so eat, these are literally the chapters. So we're not going to go too deep into it just because of time, but approach prayerfully. So begin by praying, God, show me um, who you are and how to apply this in your word today. Approach humbly, um, approach desperately. Um, a studious, the next one is studiously. Um, number five is obediently. If I'm going too fast, y'all tell me. Okay, okay, sorry. So prayerfully, prayerfully, humbly, desperately, studiously, Okay, obediently, joyfully, expectantly, communally, and the last one is Christocentrically. <laughs> so let me spell that one. C-H-R-I-S. T-O-C-E-N-T-R-I-C-A-L-L-Y. The Christ, Christ is at the center. That's what that means. So how different would your study time go? The first one? Oh, oh, approach it appropriately. But purposely would be also appropriate. <laughs> Fill in your own blank there. <laughs> yeah. But how, like, how different would your time in the Word be if you approached it with these things in mind and this posture before the Lord? Okay. Did y'all get all those? Okay. Um, the guy who wrote the book, he says, if the existence of the Bible reveals anything about God, is that he's a talker. Um, and then he says, your Bible is like an all-access pass into the revealed mind and heart of God. I just love that quote. Okay, so the next part is as you study. So uh, the actual studying, like you've done all the preparation, you've got all your stuff. And um, the first one is read the passage for yourself first before you read any additional tools. So go ahead and read the passage and start thinking about it, right? So number two is underline or highlight. I'm an underliner in my Bible. Some of you are highlighters. Um, but what stands out to you? So if you're reading, like this morning, I was in John 13. What I'm doing is as I'm reading it, I'm underlining what sticks out to me. So is there a verse that sticks out to me as I'm reading? Or is there a verse that I want to know more about? Like I'm starting to, I just underline it as I'm reading. And then I begin, so the next number three is begin to ask yourself these questions. What does this passage say about God? So who, what does it say about who he is and what he does? Um, but what does this passage teach us about people or teach us about us? So those are the parts underneath. Um, so as you're reading and highlighting, start asking yourself, what is this saying about God? And then what is this saying about us? Um, and then dig deeper. So now if you have the time and you can dig deeper, like look for context. Use the tools that you've gathered to look for context. There's a historical contact, context, so that's like, who wrote it? Who did, who, if Kyle talked about Luke, Luke wrote it. Well, who did he write it to? And when did he write it? And why did he write it? So it's like, why, those kinds of things, historical context. The narrative context, so the Bible is divided up into um, sections, right? So where does it fit in the overall story of, of the Bible? Um, and then culture, again, with customs and practice of the day, we don't know what 
what, why things were written and why it's so significant. So it's helpful to have some tools to look at to see why it was um, included. Um, so context, the next one is content. What are the facts that are making up the story? And then the third thing, connections. So what are the strategies used by the authors um, to make their point? Is there a repetition in that chapter of a word or phrase? Y'all are looking at me like y'all are confused. What did I say? Okay, just don't listen. I'm just going to do listen. Um, okay, context, content, connections, connections. So, and then, yeah, so the connection is, is like, like the repetition. Where, how is it connected? Is it something being repeated in that chapter over and over again? So why is it being repeated? What, what is the point the author's trying to um, stress here? Um, and then the commentary. So what are, so like looking at what is the significance and application of the passage at that time? Okay. And then you can look at two or three different ones. So don't just always look at the same commentary, but feel like take some time and look at two or three different ones um, to look up words you may not know or like cross reference the passages. So if it talks about another passage, like look it up. And also, I know that some days you're not going to have time to dig this deep, right? But, but some days you will have time. And so this is just developing a rhythm of, um, of digging deeper. The number five is apply it. So as you're reading it, what does it mean? Um, what comfort, promise, challenge can you take away from this passage? And how are you going to respond or live differently because of what you read? If you're not applying it, you're missing something, right? So if you're just reading for knowledge, for knowledge's sake, the next part is applying it, okay? All right, the number six is journal it. So I encourage you to journal. I don't know how many of you are journalers, but I encourage you to journal it. And you can journal, like, highlight the scripture. I literally, in my journal every day, will take the scripture that has stood out to me, and I will, um, I will write it in my journal for the day so that I know when I look back that that verse or those verses stood out to me in my reading. So um, thoughts, what are your thoughts about it? What are the applications for it? Or, like, what are your prayers? As you're processing all this you're learning and you're talking to God, um, you can journal that also. Um, so that's number six. Number seven is respond to it. So that's kind of like apply it, but then that's not actually just thinking about how you're going to apply it, but that's actually doing it. And so prayer is the first thing I listed there. So talk with God, but also take time to listen. And that's not just at this point in the process, but that's before, during, and after the study, prayer should be involved. And then the next steps, what are, what are you going to do? If you're reading something and the Lord convicts you of maybe something you said um, to a friend the day before, and in, while you're praying and journaling, you're like, okay, I need to go back to my friend and, and um, ask forgiveness. So your next step and your response would be to go talk to that friend. So that's actually doing it. Um, and then number eight is share it. And I would encourage you, like, have somebody in your life that you can, um, that you can share what you're learning with. So is there somebody you can share it with um, and who that person is? And then also, like, debrief with that person. So have somebody in your life that you, um, that you are accountable to, <laughs> that they are going to hold you accountable, that you're going to study and you're actually going to do the things that you're saying. I know there's some of you that have that person in your life, and you'll text that person saying, like a picture of you reading the Bible. And so that's just like an accountability that, hey, I got up this morning, like I said I would, and I'm going to read it. And so that, that looks different for everybody. I don't have somebody I text, so that's not something necessarily I do. But I have friends that I talk to, and like, hey, I was reading this this morning, and this is what I felt like this was what stood out to me, and this is what I need to do, okay? Um, and so that's... That's real quick. I know that I went super fast, but, um, but just thinking through the practicality of studying 
the Bible. We wanted to give you some, some tools. Um, I've asked a couple of our students in the room to, um, to kind of share because it looks different for everybody. So like I've decided my time I'm gonna study the Bible is in the morning. Um, and it's like the second or third thing I do in the morning. And, um, and that's usually behind going to the bathroom and letting my dog out. So just full disclosure. Um, and so then I, my place is I sit in my bed um, and I, because I'm, I don't fall asleep because I'm sitting up <laughs> and I have my journal and I have my Bible and a pen and I have my, I have a, um, an app that I have commentaries on that that's the app I use to kind of dig in. Um, and I'm just going chapter, usually it's chapter by chapter of a book. And like I told you, I'm highlighting and I'm um, writing that out and I'm like, pulling those verses and I'm looking at the commentary and I'm thinking through. So that's just kind of what it looks like for me right now in this season. Do more than just like a devotion that picks one verse randomly. They're like, there's not a consistent um, study. Like if it's taken it verse by verse and it's diving deeper, like that's okay. But like be careful of the devotional books that just like there's one verse and then there's all this commentary my concern with that is like you're not seeing the full context of the um, of that verse for yourself. So if you have that devotion that does that, I would say take take that verse and look in scripture before you read the commentary. Um, take that scripture and look at the entire chapter so that you're seeing the context in which that that um, was intended um, to be in. Um, and I think also like. It's okay that it looks different. It's okay that if it's like some people take a longer time to in the like when they're doing it, they have more time. In different seasons, you'll have more time, right? Like there are seasons where if you get five minutes in the Word in the mornings, y'all celebrate that. <laughs> Don't be convicted by that because you're starting your day in the Word, right? Um, but if you have some time that you can set aside to go deeper, maybe the next day, do that. And so I just really want to stress, like, like we said, quality over the quantity, because I don't, because I know sometimes the, the, there's, you get kind of caught up in like the shame of not spending more time in the word or the, um, yeah. And, um, and the enemy just convinces you just, just don't even bother. Like why bother? <laughs> okay. Is that just me? I mean, me, Angie's like agreeing. But um, so it's just me and Angie that <laughs> we listen to them. I just don't have the heart to do it. Uh, some days I just don't want to do it. And so I would say in that, like, praise God if you're not like me <laughs> in that. But just get up and do it anyway. Like, make that time to do it because you're going to get something out of it. And there's days that I'll read a chapter and I'm like, nothing stood out to me. <laughs> Lord. And so then I go back and read it again. And then some, you know, eventually something will stand out. And so anyway, this, I hope like this helps, right? Like we just wanted to get you somewhere started. And if you don't have something that you're doing on a day by day basis, and you're trying to spend time in the word to get to know God, get to know God in, at a deeper level, like we want to help you with that. And so we've given you a list of, of list of resources, but we can meet with you and um, and help you think through your plan. What I'm doing now isn't what I've always done. I've have not always sat in my bed. Right now, that's working. There was a season that didn't work, so I was at a kitchen table, right? And so um, yeah, so it it uh, it changes over time, and that's okay. Okay. Recording so that if we put it on the podcast, it gets picked up. Um, but yeah, uh, we would love to talk to you later as well. Um, if you have any questions you want to chat more about, but um, you can text in a question if you are more comfortable with that. Um, but also, if you just want to ask one out loud, that's obviously totally fine. So um, if anyone uses that, it may take a second for them to get it in. So anybody just have a question kind of out the gate that you would like to ask? Nope, they've got it all figured out. We, we did that good of a job yeah. that, that we... Uh, They're like, it's time for dinner. <laughs>
time. I hope you ate dinner before you came to this. I did not. Amory. Yes, I would just say, like, share with them the joy it is mm-hmm. of getting to spend time with God daily. And, and help them understand, like, not, it's, there are going to be days that you don't want to do it, right? I've kind of harped on that a little bit. <laughs> I sound like I never want to study the Bible. Just trying to keep it real, Kim. <laughs> yeah, real. confession. Um, but, yeah, but I think, like, just encourage them by sharing what a joy it is for you. And being real about, like, some days I don't want to do it. And one thing, too, like, on a more practical level, I mean, it's very practical, but, um, like, not saying it's not practical advice, but even more, is it, like, Bible reading plans? If, if they really say they want to do this, like, you can actually do, um, I know, like, through the Bible app, I think others do, you can actually add somebody to that plan and, like, send us notifications, and you can see, hey, Anne-Marie's read her Bible today, like, read the plan, and, and like, if, if they are open to that kind of, hey, like, I want to do this, like, but I need some help, like, it's like an accountability thing of, hey, like, you know, I'm going to read, and we can see each other if we read or not, and check in and make sure we're keeping up with it. So that may not be something they want to do, but it's like a level of accountability. Or if y'all are reading the same plan together, then y'all can talk about it. Yeah, exactly. If they're a Christian, that's what I would say. Yes. Uh, We're going to alternate. We'll do a a texting question, then we'll go back to out loud. So someone said, let's say I've never read the Bible before. Where should I start? That's a great question. I think the Gospels is really good. So like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if you're going to pick one Everyone has a different one. What's your, what's, the, what's your gospel you like to recommend for first? John. John. I actually say Mark. Huh? That's just me, though. So it's shorter, and um, it's really quick, so you get a big picture of Jesus' yeah. life in ministry. So, but yeah, either John or Mark. Start there, then read the other gospels. Then I'd say, like, probably just go through the New Testament. And if you don't know what the gospels are in the Bible, that's the, in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Yes. So pick one of those and read first. And then just keep going. In and the take Testament. your time. Yeah, yeah, take your time. And, and ask people about it. Ask a Christian you know. But that's a great place to begin, I think. If you don't want to read a whole chapter, read just a section. Exactly. Especially starting out. All right, other question out loud. Jackson? Mm-hmm. then be tomb a angel versus two angels yeah 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 so the for the first part well the 40 years like I, by the way i'm not an expert in this kind of stuff like i just have a basic seminary degree so i'm in no way like a phd in this kind of stuff but well 40 years i mean that, that's a generation right so people are still alive so when paul is writing even at, like in first and second corinthians about like second corinthians about the resurrection and the people that jesus appeared to like that is dated at a time when like those people would still be alive so Paul's basically saying, hey, if you, don't, if you don't believe this Jesus stuff, go ask people who have met him, like, because they're still alive. So the 40 years, well, yeah, that may seem like a long time for us. First off, those people who saw Jesus being resurrected were still alive to affirm and confirm the stuff being written. But also, they were a very much oral culture, like people didn't read and write the way that we um, do today. So oral transmission and preservation was a lot different back then than it is today as well. Does that make, make sense? And then the, what's the second part of your... Oh, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, so it's like, I mean, just because one author mentions a detail, the other doesn't, doesn't mean that they're mutually contradictory. Like, the one angel versus two angels or the healing, like, you know, with, I forget which gospel it says, one angel versus two, but just because they said a angel doesn't mean there wasn't another one there. And also, every gospel author has a different focus when they're writing, and they have a different lens they're writing through, so they sometimes leave out certain details or focus in on certain details to highlight even in that story, like what they're trying to drive home. So, and that would be a very widely accepted um, mechanism, I guess, if you will, at the time of gospel writing. Because while we think biography and we think it begins when he's born and here's all the details about his life and how it works out, uh, 
gospels of that time because there were other gospels of other people written at that time they had a different kind of literature to where it wasn't expected by people reading in that culture that it's going to be a very specific chronological highly detailed account they were okay with there being a lens placed on it because that was the kind of literature that was used at the time um, and we just view biographies differently today so while we sometimes say gospels are like biographies of jesus it's like yes and no yes they are but by the standards of that culture not our culture today yeah does that make sense I can give you some books if you want to read more on that uh, to do a deeper dive. So, yeah. There was someone else who texted in a question. Um, someone said, why are certain books not included in the Septuagint? I knew someone was going to ask about this. I had it in my notes and I took it out. I'm not going to go into super detail. So the Septuagint, that, that's the Apocrypha, right? What is that? Yeah, sorry. I'm using yeah. so many big words. I'm sorry. So Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Um, so Old Testament, you know, people weren't speaking Hebrew in, in Roman culture at the time, even of Jesus. So they had translated it into the Greek. People could read it. And at certain points after the early church kind of got going, people began to realize that there were these other books from the Old Testament, like Maccabees and things like that, that were written during the intertestamental time between Old and New Testament. And the early church didn't recognize them as scripture. But later on, they saw these books that were in the Septuagint, the, what we would call the Apocrypha, and they said, hey, we should put these in the Old Testament, like in our Bibles. There was a big debate about it. The Catholic Church, I point over there like St. Francis, the Roman Catholic Church said, we're going to put it in there. And they put the, um, the uh, they would not call it the Apocrypha, but they put those books in there. The Reformers, where we as Baptists get our tradition from, said, no, we're not going to do that. They have a lot of reasons why. A lot of it is there's some really clear errors in there that, that are historically inaccurate. They were, the reformers said, no, we're not going to put it in there. And the big reason they didn't is because the early church didn't recognize the Apocrypha as the Bible, so they didn't ref- recognize it as the Bible either. So that's the whole deal with the Apocrypha. There's your mini history lesson for a second. But. A good study battle will help Is that great? That. Yeah, it will definitely answer that question for you. Okay, another question. Let's maybe do one more question out loud and one more text question. And then if you have more questions, these are great. Like, we'd be happy to, uh, to talk with you after if you have more. But any, any other out loud questions? We're just that good at this. Okay, all right. We'll, we'll do two brief ones for text. Do you have a study that you recommend for going through Revelation? Hmm. There, there are a couple of good commentaries. Reverse Thunder by Eugene Peterson is a cool commentary on Revelation, if you want that. Um, other ones, I can't think of the names right now. Do you have a good Revelation study? Okay. Oh, Deanna's got one. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, yeah, I've heard of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and a good, a good study Bible will also give you some great commentary in Revelation. Um, that would be helpful as you read through it. Because the part, part of the problem of Revelation is that we impose our modern Western version of, like, this must be all prophecy about Apache helicopters and, like, the, you know, like the next, you know, Elon Musk is the Antichrist. Like, that's not... That's not Revelation, okay? That's not what it's really talking about. Um, all right, last thing. Suggestions for Greek translations for the uber nerds. The, uh, the Greek translations, I put a reference on your, um, your page there. It's biblestudyapp.com, I think is on the references. That's a great free way if you really want to nerd out and look at the Greek and Hebrew, and it will actually let you hover your mouse, or I guess you tap on your phone or your finger, and it'll, if you tap an English word, it'll show it, in the on the desktop, I know it does this. It'll show it on the um, on the Greeks. Like if you tap love on uh, the uh, English, it'll highlight agape in the Greek, and you can play around with that and kind of figure it out. Some things like that. That's a good place to begin if you're trying to dive into some of the original language stuff without any uh, training. Um, but yeah, that's a good place to start. There's also the Hebrew Greek keyword study Bible. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, too. so it, under you can look and dive deeper there too. Yeah. Yeah, Blue Letter Bible is also good, too. Yeah. Um, I think they all kind of are pulling from the same resources, but that one's a really good one, too. Cool. All right, well, Kim, will you pray for us? Yeah. To wrap us up? God, thank you uh, so much, Lord, that um, that you allow us the opportunity to, um, to know you more. And God, I thank you for your word, um, Father, and how it speaks to us. Um, God, I pray um, that as we consider what our own personal time looks like with you, God, that we would just do something, right? And that we would um, that we would go with all those things that were listed expectantly and 
joyfully, um, God, and, and um, anticipating to hear from you as we study the word. And God, I know it's overwhelming and there's so many questions, but God, I, I thank you for the resources that we have um, today to help us kind of navigate some of the, the harder passages. And um, God, I pray for each student in this room. I pray, God, that they would wake up in the morning with um, just a desire that they've never had before to study your word. Um, God, that, um, that Lord, that as they dig into your word, God, that they would hear from you. Um, God, that they would be encouraged and challenged and convicted, um, Lord, and um, I pray, God, that that you would help us to know your word and to um, to sit and meditate on your word, God, um, Lord, and that we would apply it, and our lives would be different because of meeting with you, and so I pray for that for all of these students, for myself and Kyle, um, God, I, and I pray that in just this um, this week of busyness and all the things that are going on, God, that we would prioritizing meeting with you. And um, God, that um, when we don't desire you, we would still um, get up and meet with you. And so God, I just pray for that and just ask that you just um, take little snippets maybe of what we've said tonight. And I pray that it was helpful. And we just ask um, God that you would continue just to lead us um, and guide us in Jesus name. Amen.